0: Safer safe? In- sex,
1: intercourse, sexually sex- transmitted infections, HIV, sexual HIV. HIV.
2: health, treatment, sexual attractive, sexually transmitted infections,
1: sex education, sexual, health. Health. sexual health. Sex- edu- edu- Transmit edu- health
0: specialist. Hi, and welcome back. I'm Heather, and you're listening to the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast, where we talk about all things related to sexual health. World Antibiotic Awareness Week rolls around every year in November. It's designed to draw attention to the growing threat of antimicrobial resistance and the role that proper use of antibiotics can play in the response to it. The discovery of antibiotics revolutionised medicine and they have saved countless lives, but they only work against organisms that are susceptible to them. Resistance happens when bacteria stops an antibiotic from working effectively, meaning that some infections may not be able to be treated. Antibiotic resistance is a real threat to public health. So what does this mean in a sexual health context? We've all seen sensationalist media about superbug STIs, but it can be difficult to get a feel for how serious the problem actually is and how we should respond. To find out, we spoke to Dr. Pam Konechny, who is a senior staff specialist in infectious diseases at St George Hospital, and Professor Alex Broom from the Centre for Social Research and Health at the University of New South Wales.
2: So, I'm Pam Konechny. I'm a um, infectious diseases and sexual health physician, and I work as a um, staff specialist at St George Hospital in our Department of Infectious Diseases, Immunology and Sexual Health. Um, I, a big part of my role, actually, in the hospital is looking after antibiotic management, and I'm um, the clinical lead I guess you'd say of our antimicrobial stewardship program so we look after resistant infection anti infections which um, are problematic because they've got resistant bugs involved so um, a fair bit of my time is actually looking after appropriate antibiotic management assisting my colleagues in doing that.
0: So many of our listeners work in health and likely have a fairly good understanding of what antimicrobial resistance is, but the knowledge level of the general public is much lower. How would you recommend explaining antimicrobial resistance when health professionals are designing interventions for consumers?
2: I think that's a really good question, and it's very interesting. As I think as health professionals, we assume certain knowledge that our consumers have. But a a very interesting WHO, World Health Organization survey, um, just a couple of years ago across several countries identified this really important um, concept that that consumers often think it's actually them or the person or the body who's taking the antibiotics that is resistant to the antibiotic, um, not appreciating that it's actually the bacteria that are um, resistant to the antibiotic. And that that has some important implications because it means that um, you need to shift the knowledge base so that they're aware that there are resistant um, bacteria out there and those bacteria can actually be spread from person to person um, through poor hand hygiene or poor sanitation. Um, things like that, so we can actually do a lot more about resistant bacteria spreading um, with things that we can do ourselves, so it's not like your body has become resistant to antibiotics and therefore you're not going to be able to have antibiotics. So it's an important concept, so it's um, also that the resistant bacteria are bugs that are selected out um, by overuse of antibiotics. And it's a bit like Darwinian you know, evolution, that you will get the bugs surviving that are resistant to the antibiotic courses that are given. So over time, that's how we are basically generating more and more resistant bacterial pathogens, not just bacteria actually as well as viruses and um, fungi. So it's important for consumers to know that there are things that they can do um, and how they interact with the health professions, how we interact with them is very important to particularly have, you know, really judicious, appropriate use of antibiotics. They are fantastic and very important to have powerful antibiotics when you need them, but not to use those antibiotics if you don't need them. So it's a kind of simple message, but it's very important to make that differentiation. So putting
0: this in the context of sexual health, what would you say is the biggest threat in terms of antimicrobial resistance in sexual health?
2: So the biggest threat, I'm sure it's becoming more prominent, we see in the media now that people are becoming aware that there are superbugs, which is a scary kind of term, but um, it represents these multi-resistant and um, bacteria, uh, the gon- gonorrhea, Neisseria gonorrhea being probably one of the most prominent ones and better known out of um, the two bacterial sexually transmitted infections, the other one being Mycoplasma genitalium, that's not so well known, but it is another bacteria that can cause sexually transmitted infection. And We know that the rates of resistance is just increasing um, significantly every year um, across the world and particularly in some areas, more than other areas. So on top of that, of course, Nigeria itself is spreading and we're seeing doubling in um, the number of sexually transmitted infections um, in a large number of populations across the world some populations more than others. But antimicrobial resistance in um, these pathogens means that we are limited, getting increasingly limited in our choices that we can treat these bacteria with. Mm -hmm. So already it's, we know that you have to treat uh, Neisseria gonorrhea with Keftriaxone. And now we have to use an oral antibiotic as well. You have to use double combination to try and make sure we don't select out resistant bugs and to try and eradicate it completely. Um, but then there are some gonorrhoea that we know now that are resistant to both of those. So it's very um, concerning that we're getting to that point where they're potentially untreatable um, Mm -hmm. sexually transmitted infections.
0: And to put it into context for our listeners, how real is this threat of untreatable infections? What are we likely to see happen in the sexual health space as antimicrobial resistance increases?
2: What we'll find is that the treatments will be harder to um, give. So some antibiotics have to be given intramuscularly, um, and they may be needed to be treated to, to be given for longer courses. Um, we they'll be more expensive for healthcare providers um, for our our health system. They will also be potentially experimental. So we fortunately the WHO has a Uh, Strategy to support research and development now in this area. It's so significant. Um, So there are new agents coming out, but these are very new and untested and untried so far. Um, But it's giving us a window of hope. But what that does mean is in the future we have to be very careful about those new antibiotics that we use. And it's not going to be everyone that's affected, obviously. It's going to be some people that are more at risk of having sexually transmitted infection. So in this space, we will see um, newer agents, newer antibiotics, um, potentially could be more toxic. um, And there may be situations where we can't actually eradicate that bacteria uh, for that person.
0: So as you touched on earlier, you're a lead in the antimicrobial resistance work done at St George Hospital, and you've published quite extensively on the importance of antimicrobial stewardship. But your work is largely focused on hospitals. Firstly, it's a term that many of our listeners may have heard but never had defined for them. What is meant by antimicrobial stewardship?
2: That is a great question and um, it's a very clunky term and it's what we call um, what we do. There doesn't seem to be a better sort of terminology for it But in, and essentially it, it is stewardship is about caring about anything, so you can have stewardship in various areas. So stewardship is about having good governance and management of your resource and which in this case is antimicrobials. So antimicrobial we use because that includes antibiotics for bacteria, antivirals for viruses and antifungals for um, fungi as well as that you've got antibiotics for tuberculosis and some antiparasite. Um, drugs as well. So it's about antimicrobial is the big umbrella for all those types of infections by different organisms. Stewardship is um, how to best manage those and so it's made up of a number of um, principles and it's about um, educating, um, restricting um, uh, certain antibiotic classes to preserve them for resistant bacteria but also restricting them to avoid toxicity for patients. Um, and then reviewing antibiotic management after it's been initiated for the patient. So fine tuning it, rationalizing it, um, and we do that, sometimes we have to do that on a case by case situation in our intensive care unit, for example, we do ward rounds there twice a week with the microbiologist, the infectious disease physician and the intensive care physician and the pharmacist. Um, And we uh, work out what's the optimal antibiotic for that patient for all those reasons. So it's, it's a big, big sort of broad term, but it does have a lot of processes involved in, under the umbrella of antimicrobial stewardship. So it's as well as um, looking at optimising antibiotics and making sure it's cost effective and making sure we minimise the risk of resistance emerging.
0: And how do these principles of antimicrobial stewardship apply to sexual health?
2: So the same very much applies to sexual health. And what you're moving into now, which is interesting, is... Um, revising our guidelines, because in sexual health we have a lot of empiric guidelines which means giving patients, very important to give them treatment when they come to the clinic at the time after you take the test but before you know the result. And so that was a very good public health strategy back in the day where our tests were not so good, we had a longer turnaround time and it may be harder for individuals to access sexual health services but now we have you know, better tests, quicker turnaround time, and we don't necessarily need to treat everyone who say, for example, is a contact of someone who has gonorrhea. So um, what you would wanna do in those situations now is actually test and then get them to come back or contact that individual if they need to come back to have treatment. So there is, this, is, this is now the era of more patient-centered um, testing, treating and not a more, and, and we'll, we just can't afford basically um, with the emergence of resistance to blanket treat people anymore if they don't have an infection. The previous antibiotics were pretty easy to take, not very toxic, but we find now that bacteria being resistant to them we're going to have to use more um, complicated treatments. so it's better to target individuals where they, we know that they are positive and to treat those. So it's about Australia and the world looking at their um, sexual health treatment and contact tracing contact treatment guidelines um, and it's it's about because we have got capacity I guess with um, smartphones and other technology that we can access people more readily as well but it's getting that message across um, to all of you know all Australians is very important to be aware of resistance to be aware and I think people increasingly are aware not to have an antibiotic if you don't have an infection, for example, or not to have an antibiotic if you've got a viral infection, for which antibiotics obviously don't work, um, and to just be aware that they need to see someone get tested and then have an um, appropriate antibiotic if they need it. So point of care testing, that's another really interesting and important innovative um, measure that diagnostically is going to come into play in clinics Um, we already have some even gene resistance testing for mycoplasma genitalium for example there's a speedx test which is now done um, in our you know in our laboratories that we can look for the resistance genes so it's very exciting times and this is all the kind of you know um, armamentarium we need to to fight this battle
0: so you have listed some really exciting emerging tools and technologies there. What is the one big thing you'd like people working in health to take away from this
2: podcast? Uh, I think an important take-home message um, is, you know, we've had a World Antibiotic Awareness Week um, where we've had a lot of promotion across hospitals um, and across the community with the National Prescribing Service, the NPS, also promoting good use of antibiotics. Um, is that in the sexual health uh, place to basically have people aware um, and, you know, stay up to date with what's happening with um, antibiotics and resistant bacteria to prevent ha- getting them in the first place. So uh, making sure you, save your sex, you have safer sex practices when you have sex and um, hopefully not contract them in the, in the first instance. Um, and... That doctors are also aware of what they may be required to do, you know, with testing down the track and treatment changes to guidelines and so on.
0: That was Dr. Pam Konechny from St George Hospital. We also spoke to Professor Alex Broom from the Centre for Social Research and Health.
1: So, I'm a Professor of Sociology at UNSW. Um, we run a program across Australia focused on issues around infections um, and antimicrobial resistance but largely from a social perspective. Um, So how do the ways we act shape um, I guess both what happens currently but also our future Uh, and that relates to the kind of global crisis of antimicrobial resistance. Our focus is on how we act and how we might change that um, to prevent this escalating crisis.
0: For the clinicians among our listeners, it may not be immediately obvious why sociology is all that relevant to their work treating and preventing sexually transmitted infections. Can you explain what gives your work real-world application to these mm, people?
1: Sure. Um, so we spend a lot of time working with clinicians, and in fact, clinicians are central to the program. Um, this global issue of antimicrobial resistance is very much a social problem, not just a medical problem. So it really comes down to misuse, overuse um, or poor information or testing being provided to clinicians so that they can um, use antimicrobials appropriately. This is not about good and bad behaviour, it's about a health service environment which enables people to act appropriately or not, as the case may be. So we um, focus on everything from really difficult questions of why clinicians act in the way they do, so a sense of risk to the patient, um, wanting to cover themselves um, for the liability of missing something, Um, benevolence, so just wanting to give the best immediate care to the person Um, and the whole wide range of social issues that drive why we act like we do. Antimicrobial resistance is an outcome of behaviour. It's it's simply as that. Um, It's not just a technological or pharmaceutical problem.
0: So as you've highlighted there, um, antimicrobial resistance is a social problem, and you've published quite extensively on the social dynamics of this issue. Mm -hmm. This is an area that's of particular interest to people working in sexual health. What can you tell us about the role of social dynamics in the response to antimicrobial resistance in STIs?
1: That's a very, very good question. Um, And STIs and sexual health carries with it particular social concerns um, and in relation to how we treat it too. So um, for example, fast testing is really important um, so that when people present um, with symptoms um, that we can know very quickly whether it is chlamydia or gonorrhea or whatever whatever it might be, rather than at present, which often occurs in STIs, is to treat based on symptomatology but not actually um, micro results. Um, So there's a lot of current over-treating and as you can understand in STIs, sometimes a lack of presentation later on as well. Um, So you want to treat at the moment or when they turn up. Um, We also have, um, in the context of STIs, a problem with um, the treatment with antibiotics and then a, um, a re-presentation um, based on the GP's suggestion um, several weeks later, which also tests positive, um, but it's dead cells. So essentially it's not clinically meaningful, but they often get treated again. So what you get is an overuse. Um, so there's dual problems there. One is um, treating people um, without... Um, without actually testing for whether they have an infection, and secondly, retreating in contexts where the infection actually isn't present anymore. So they're the key issues around STIs in particular from a clinical perspective.
0: So much of your writing has referred to an impending antimicrobial perfect storm, which is a very interesting phrase. Can you explain what you mean by this term?
1: I can. Um, So what we mean by a perfect storm um, is a pipeline which is drying up. Um, So what we've seen is a a reduction in the production of new antimicrobials and in STIs, for example, your average um, antibiotic is shelved um, within 10 years um, because it essentially, um, resistance develops. And so in order to effectively treat STIs, like other infections, you need an adequate pipeline because quite naturally antimicrobials um, will become resistant. The second aspect of that is misuse and overuse. Um, so, what we essentially have is a situation of diminishing production of new pharmaceutical options and an increase in overusage, which creates this sort of spiralling problem of resistance. Um, We know that if you significantly reduce misuse, which reduces the um, uh, selective pressure in the environment, um, then you can actually pull back resistance. Um, And ultimately that's what the perfect storm is.
0: So on the topic of antibiotic misuse, you in your work have called for an increased focus on why antibiotics are often misused in medical context rather than the more common emphasis on exactly what is being done wrong and how it should be fixed. Why is examining the why of antimicrobial misuse so important to address the issue?
1: The model that we use is that constructing people as bad or misusers of antibiotics actually doesn't change behaviour. Understanding what leads them to act in that way is by far the most potent way to actually begin to change what people do. If you look at low resource settings, health services with limited, um, say, professional education or even infectious diseases support, it's of no surprise in those particular contexts that this high use of antimicrobials and perhaps what would be considered misuse, um, that's understandable to some extent. So if we try and improve Uh, on the basis of what's technically correct, then we won't actually accommodate what people and clinicians experience day to day and those different pressures across different health services.
0: So you've also talked about how sociology may present solutions to the social problem of antimicrobial misuse and resistance, and I know that's a phrase that might make some ears prick up among our audience. Can you explain a little more about your ideas on social solutions to antimicrobial
1: resistance? I think that's essentially got to be multi-tiered and I'll start by talking about how we can perhaps um, use the social sciences to um, assist clinicians in navigating, I guess, improving their use. Um, So in the hospital sector what we have done, um, for example, is to address the social reasons why misuse often occurs. Now that might be power dynamics between junior and senior doctors, interprofessional dynamics where nurses and pharmacists don't necessarily feel like they can question prescribing decisions, or even like I said before highly vulnerable patients, low resource settings where there's just too much risk placed on the um, clinician to to try and optimize um, antimicrobial misuse. So we've gone in there with um, a series of sociologically informed interventions to actually um, provide a a culture which recognizes the limitations of the setting, but also seeks to work around those limitations. So, for example, to support junior doctors to make optimization decisions themselves, rather than to defer to, for example, a senior consultant. So, we've sought to provide acknowledgement of um, the social and the why, as you put it before, um, in order to enact change within service settings. The broader, um, I guess, public issues is that um, we all need to acknowledge that we are stewards of antibiotics and antimicrobials. And what that really means is this idea of collective responsibility. If we don't own every instance Um, of decision-making around infections and trying to make that, I guess, more appropriate with better technologies, better information and support from both clinicians and the patients and families, then we're actually not going to be able to solve the situation. So the big picture is getting people from all walks of life to internalise stewardship, that they are actually responsible for both um, and not in a you know, negative way, in a positive, optimistic way. If we want a positive antimicrobial future, then we all need to act appropriately in the present. So and it's an intergenerational issue.
0: And how would you say this approach applies to a sexual health context?
1: Um, in many respects, the issues in sexual health resonate with the broader issues, which is currently we have um, a lack of fast... Um, information to clinicians so they're forced into a situation where they're, they're acting blind. Now how can you possibly ask people to be stewards of antimicrobials if they don't have the information about whether um, an infection is present um, or if it's resistant to a particular option. So we need very rapid testing um, we also need um, stewardship to be resourced from the government um, for it to be um, instilled in policy that primary care um, environments and including sexual health environments that stewardship is actually a, a, a key part of the institutional culture. If we make it optional, um, it will be one of those things that falls off the edge if you like. Um, I think that res- you know resistant gonorrhea um, has increased significantly um, over the last few years. We're going to see that over the next decade or two in a whole range of different areas. In the context of sexual health, it's clear that the situation is getting worse, um, and I think that makes it a really good place um, to begin to offer a model of um, rapid testing, Um, the internalisation of stewardship from a primary care perspective is supported by adequate resourcing from government um, and uh, from institutions.
0: So just to wrap up, what would you say is the most important thing for health professionals to know about the social aspects of antimicrobial resistance?
1: The most important thing for health professionals in general to understand that what they do ultimately makes a difference, not just in relation to the patient, but in relation to infections and antimicrobial resources in the present and in the future. What they do and how they act makes a difference to others around them because they become an example, an exemplar of how to act. So what we do has ripple effects across people, across sites, um, and if we throw our hands up in the air and say, what difference does what I do make, then I think that that has a reverse effect. That has a sort of um, the effect of of stopping change, and I think we urgently need it.
0: That was Dr. Pam Konechny, Senior Staff Specialist in Infectious Diseases at St. George Hospital, and Professor Alex Broom from the Centre for Social Research and Health at the University of New South Wales, joining us to discuss antimicrobial resistance. As we wrap up World Antibiotic Awareness Week for another year, it's an important topic for us all to think of. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Remember, if you want to hear more from us, share this podcast around your friends and colleagues and don't forget to subscribe.